0: This is the UK House Builder and Developer from Good to Great series with Gerard Ball Managing Director of Human Capital Group Helping you build your UK house teams and businesses fast We find the top 15% of talent in the market by harnessing the power of big data 24-7, 365 digital automation platforms and inbound strategies Leveraged by 20 years successful mid to senior level recruitment experience
1: in this episode, Carl Hick, owner and founder of Lincolnshire-based developer Larkfleet Homes, tells Human Capital Group's MD Gerard Ball about his journey in the house-building industry. From acquiring Allison Homes out of receivership in the early noughties, selling a success story to Kia almost a decade later, and going on to head Lark Fleet through the next two decades, growing the company to a circa 400-unit-a-year operation. He also shares with us his passion for sustainable, affordable and energy efficient housing and what it takes to stay sane and sleep well as the head of a busy house building group. Hi, nice to meet you Carl and and welcome to the show. I'm gonna jump straight in. Looking at your career history, I see you studied chemistry at university. Tell me, how did you as a, a chemistry graduate move into the house building industry?
2: I did a chemistry degree And then I reassessed my career because I got concerned about working in a lab and what the chemical were doing to my health being an athlete. So I I reconsidered and then went to train to be a chartered accountant in the city. Mm -hmm. So I did my three to four years and qualified as a chartered accountant. I was never happy to work in, in, the, in the profession, so I then needed need to go into industry as quick as I could. I replied to an advert in the Sunday Times that wanted a chartered accountant to be FD of a commercial property division, but they also had to be an international athlete. <laughs> so I applied for that job, which was an unusual job, and mm-hmm. I spent a few years there having two days off to run, and three days off doing my day job. Right. And as long as I so-called competed um, well, then the company were happy for me to have my two days off. So I had to kind of commit to running well in when I ran for the company. And as long as I did well in those races, then I was fine for me two days off. Oh, really? And that's how I kind of – so that was Alfred McAlpine's. Right. And that was – and that was my, that was me getting into the construction industry. Okay. Okay. And what was, sorry, what your role there was? I was finance director of their commercial property division. From there, I had a series of injuries and then I moved on and I joined a group that then acquired a company in Lincolnshire in about 87 called Allison Homes. Right. And then I, within a few years, I did a management buyout as the group got into trouble in the original, in the first recession that I got involved, which actually was as difficult as the um, 2008 recession. In fact, right. probably harder. Right, okay. So almost a week after my MBO, interest rates went up on one day to about 50%. Right. And we were at the, and that was when the country came out, of the the ERM, which right. the, um, sort of linked sterling to the euro, right. came out of that. And clearly, there were some real problems in the UK economy at that time. And so, obviously, I had to weather the storm of having a business whereby things were pretty dire. Mm. But anyway, I managed to kind of get through it somehow. And mm. then I sold Allison's in 19 in 2001. We'll come back to your backstory in a minute and see yeah. how
1: most people I thought in the industry, certainly across the Midlands, would know who, who Lark Fleet were. But just, just from your. Just for you to give it, us a bit more flavour to the business. Can you just tell us a bit about where Larkfleet Group is today? Your, your geographical focus, for the number of units you build, and kind of where you're, where you're focused as a business in terms of the market.
2: We compete. We're a medium-sized company. We're looking at doing about 400 houses this year, and we're split between my main base, which is South Caithness. And Lincolnshire, right? Mainly South Lincolnshire, but we do have schemes in North Lincolnshire as well, Mm. uh, in in Nettleham and Lincoln and various places. I have then my A15 corridor and South, which then encompasses Peterborough, Oakham, and Huntingdon, right? So, Larfleet, that's Larfleet region. The old company that I bought back and I sold Allison's concentrates on the A15 and Northwood, so that's Bourne and South Costev and South Island right. and the Lincolnshire districts. I have a small division that I set up about two or three years ago in the southwest, in Taunton and Exeter. Right. Okay. And they're the they're the two regions we specialise. And we've grown that. So they'll be looking to do about hundred units this year. So okay. we've grown it kind of relatively below the radar. But have you got ago. a business unit down Business in unit area. completely yeah. and I've got a whole team there that we've put together and, and they they take ownership of wow. the business and myself and the managing director who works here, Daryl, we monitor them on a regular basis right. and go down there and and it's a nice place to go. So I was enjoying there. Um, and then we have an office which we've set up in near Norwich and that would be the That that, and I've got a lot of land, land in that region mm. and we're looking to grow that Brexit aside but that is my next major project but I'm just being a bit cautious <laughs> because of the Brexit and what the outcome of that right and I'm not going to be political in this particular but you know I was in London yesterday and I saw a big financial think tank issue the statement that Brexit today has cost the UK economy 69 billion and that money could have gone into schools and all sorts of things so it's a lot of money, but it is having an effect on the UK economy. So mm. one has to be a bit careful about what, what, what that's done to us all. So, in terms of, let's
1: talk about Alice, back to Alison Homes. So, you did a, a management buyout of Alison Homes. W- roughly when was that? That was in the early 90s. Right, okay.
2: And then you set up um, Lark Fleet Group in. I set it up in 1998. And. It was doing some small developments alongside Allison's. Right. And then when Allison's got sold, and the date that Allison completed will never be forgotten because it was 9-11 day. Right. So on the date that I was doing all of the completion yeah. with a company called Kia, I was looking in the background of all of these aircrafts going into these, into the buildings. Right. So okay. the whole day. Was a very traumatic day mm. on the basis that there I was in the morning thinking I just had to sign a few documents and my other directors or well, my other joint MD David Me was looking to retire so he was just kind of away and suddenly I got found I was in the middle of a complete utter turmoil right and the dealings on that day from being what I thought was going to be a nice, simple day, yeah. you know, halfway through the day, I, I was calling all my directors back and saying, look, I think we need to kind of think about the business tomorrow because clearly what's going on today is, is actually made a big difference. In the end, Kia completed and mm-hmm. it, took, it went on. It completed late in the evening, probably early morning. And to be honest, that happened. But it was it was a day that I won't ever forget. So, right. and, then, and then I served my years kind of non-compete period, and then I kind of got, got going in Lafleet probably in 2001, and one two type yeah. timescale. Did you always know
1: that you wanted to run your own business rather than run it for someone else?
2: I've always been really ambitious. So if I do something like my athletics and other things, people who know me would know that if I do something, I need to be the best at it. And I guess the best at it has been absolutely running it and doing it, because you can't do anything better than that, because then you are competing with your peers. So running a business, to me, is a bit like running an athletics race. Clearly, you've got people in the field who are of different levels, and you've just got to try and find a way of winning. And therefore, running a house building business is kind of the same. It's just a different kind of, but it's the same kind of driven and you know, if you can find a new pair of spikes that makes you run a few seconds quicker, then you've got to find some technology in the house building industry that makes you sell a few more houses better than anyone right. else. So it's no different.
1: Right. Okay. In terms of just um, the new people coming through, do you feel that it's more difficult now for somebody
2: to emulate what you've done with Fleet? I think the, the issue which I take, um, which, funny enough, I was I support an APBG parliamentary group trying to address the issues of small and medium-sized house builders and the demise of them over the last 30 years and they've fallen to almost negligible levels right and if you look at someone like me even where i am today i'm one of only a handful of people in the uk so it is disappointing clearly the appg is concentrating government efforts on trying to help small and medium house builders because we used to have so many and they give a diversity and do different things that some of the bigger players don't. Mm-hmm. And therefore, a mixed bag of people is always better in my book. Those days are difficult. Government are trying to do their best to do things about it. But at the end of the day, a small and medium sized company has always got financial constraints. Their balance sheets are never going to be as good as the persimmons of Barrett. So mm-hmm. frankly, how you overcome that, and often a lot of the funding people who I talk to generally are bankers who make all the decisions, which is fair enough. But they tend to look at balance sheets.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And the poor and the medium-sized businesses and the smaller ones have not got the balance sheets that can allow them to get the money to build more houses. And somehow there needs to be some kind of insurance fund or something or other which can cover that so the country can have a widespread of different builders. But at the moment, it is almost impossible to do what I did. It would be almost impossible. And when I say impossible, there's always people out there who will do the impossible. So (laughs) you can't ever say that, but it is harder. But I guess it was hard then. You Mm. know, I'd put my whole everything on the line. So I guess I could do that again. You start Mm. slowly and you need a bit of luck. You need a bit of luck and you need a bit of skill and you need the drive. But if you can get a bit of government support to help, then mm. maybe soften the blow a little bit and give you a chance. Let's just talk about those those early days of Larkfleet. What did the company
1: look like on, on day one?
2: Well, when I sold Alison, it was like selling us, it was like parting with a son. I've got three sons and a daughter. But it was like I'd built up Alison
0: it punched above its weight all over the place, culminating in me
2: winning the House for the Year Awards right. uh, in London. So Allison, unbelievably, for a relatively small size, punched miles above its weight. And I suspect most people thought that we were a major company, albeit we were a relatively small and mm. medium one. But that was because I, you know, I tried to do well at different things and we we did we had a great company. So when I sold it, it was a really difficult. So I started when I got into Laughley, it took me it took me quite a while to be able to sell a Laugh because I couldn't help thinking <laughs> about Alison. And it took me a year during when I wasn't competing to actually get my head around that I wasn't – that I couldn't use the Alison name anymore and Laugh was when, yeah. was my new business. So it took me a while to get my head around it. It's like a break-up. It was like a breakup, and it was difficult. Mm. And I was at a – I was at a wit's end for a while, thinking what do I do because clearly I wasn't, you know, I didn't have focus as much. So I, I immersed myself into new technology, right? Okay. And in the waste industry, and bought the IP rights to a waste technology, which I managed to get floated within one year. So I started that, and then I managed to float that on the AIM market in one year. and oh, That was right. my target. Right, okay. And you were doing that whilst running Larkfleet? Well, Larkfleet was obviously only able to do certain things during that year because I had a non-compete clause with Kia, So I was able to do some stuff that they'd agreed I could do, but I wasn't able to compete particularly in that year. So I had to kind of almost have a little sabbatical for a year while I just reassessed what I was going to do. So I decided I'd give myself a challenge. Could I go into something new and could I float a company? And I did it in one year, which is exactly what I set out to do because that was the year where I was actually obviously not able to compete. So once I'd got the float away, I then had, Al- had Laughly with me and a PA, and that was it. Right. And I was in Stanford, and uh, I had a little rented office there, and I started with just one person. Right. And then I kind of started to build it up, and then I moved to a big I – I bought a construction company, and then I started looking at some land stuff and – the rest is kind of history in a way. So you were you were wearing all of the hats at the beginning, land, yeah. finance. Yeah, I even had to work out how to use the photocopier, and that was a real problem for me at the start, because I had no one to do anything apart from me. So it was quite tricky because I didn't I took things for granted about things like the you know, the photocopier and you know the, the you know the Microsoft program and all the other stuff and the phone and getting it sorted out and getting the wifi working and all that so yeah. clearly it was just me it was myself and a PA right. having to sort of kind of get some systems in place yeah. which was very frustrating because normally I had a lot of people doing it and I just had me yeah right okay um, my old MD David who retired but then he came back and he worked with me for a little bit helping some of the land and some of the so but David you know he's a great friend and we we, we still talk all the time but David realized that you know retirement meant retirement and, and it was difficult for him to want to yeah. get the effort in yeah.
1: When, when you started lastly though what did you have a clear business plan like we want to get up to x amount of units in five years or was it and I've spoken to a lot of you guys who are owning your own companies kind of fly by and see it in your pants and, and build it as it happens or was it crystal clear in your, in your head?
2: Uh, I think anyone who says that it's crystal clear in their head, they wouldn't be telling the truth because I think we all wing it a bit because, you know, you start something, opportunities come flying at you. Most people wouldn't recognise them. But the entrepreneurs and the people who kind of own businesses tend to pick up on those Mm. and actually can sort out the wheat from the chaff, and therefore you kind of see opportunities and you follow it, and actually you you don't know where they're going to go to half the time, but they just kind of evolve. And then you make something work or you don't. But people who make things happen sometimes see a germ of an idea and make it into something bigger, Mm. while other people would probably give up when they've had it turned down maybe four or five times. You know, I'm used to, you know, having 10 times being turned down, but I still keep fighting and getting up the next day. And if I think it's right, I'll keep going. And eventually you kind of make something work mm-hmm. and you kind of almost make it work if because you because yes. you believe in it. And if you believe in something, you can often make anything work or you yeah. can get someone else to change their mind about working with you if, you if you're passionate. So I think to some extent I knew the broad outline of what I was going to do. Mm. I'd made a decision that I was going to sell to the local market because I knew the advertising the marketing in Allison was expensive. So I decided to have a change of tack there. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of where I kind of knew what I was going to do. And so I think, and I also, my spell in technology and developing a new waste system gave me an insight into technology in the housing market. So I've been at the forefront of the sustainability drive. Right, okay. Which I'm probably probably known as probably more than many, many things, you know, because I've I've pushed the boundaries of what you can and cannot do. The problem I've got in this area is that viability is a big issue and therefore recreating some of the stuff that I could do wholesale. The margins up here are not high enough and the land value is not high enough to support some of the stuff that I could do. Because there isn't just enough money in the in the in the residual land value to pay for it. So what I can do here and what I can't do is difficult. So what I right. can is difficult. Now if I was in London, I could do a lot more. Mm. If I was in Cambridge, I could do a lot more. But up here, you know, the selling price is X, the costs are Y. And if those costs go higher and that's that differential doesn't work, you can't build anything. So I have to rein back what I what I could do into what I I actually can deliver and I can only deliver X and I'll deliver it fairly and reasonably and I just have to say, look, I could do this and I could do this, but I can't. Right, okay. And I do that all the time because, frankly, at the end of the day, there's no point in being in business Mm. if you can't actually better keep the bank happy and keep everyone else happy because you still want to make a profit otherwise and reinvest that. Otherwise, you don't have a business. You talked about kind of the,
1: the, the grit that has kind of made you a successful house building entrepreneur. And when I look at the other guys which I've interviewed as well, it's it's really been that grit which is you know which is evident in all of them. But it's also making sure that you capitalise on opportunities where other people might, they might have the same opportunity, but they just don't do anything with it. What would you say the the, the big Opportunities or the big turning points in the development of Larkfleet have been, whether that has been by pure luck or whether that has been I, planned.
2: I would, I would say, the reason I've survived two recessions is because I'm probably able to move. I haven't got the money to compete with the major players, so the only thing I've got is I've got I've got my wit and my grit. So my is I need to drive the, the opportunities before money comes into play. Because right. once I'm level with someone in the industry, I can't compete on money. It's a bit like, you know, someone like Burnley trying to compete with Man City. Right. That's kind of where that would be a good analogy. So yeah. Burnley can't, keep, can't compete with Man City, so they probably have to play a different game. Because mm-hmm. when they're recruiting, they can't complete on that. They have to find ways in which they can buy players, like I do, find land, and make an opportunity happen where money isn't the only thing that matters because there are other things you can add to the deal, mm-hmm. some benefits and other stuff that actually, and the person likes you or likes your company because you stand for things that, yep. that, that and you, you, you're you local, so you're going to make sure that the houses are good and you know you're going to look after the public you're going to try and help to maybe make the community work well because you're part of it mm. so we have to play a different game and I think I identified that early on and that's where I've kind of been innovative in terms of playing to my strengths I know what my weaknesses are and they're big weakness which is why, this is why it's hard for the industry to do what I did because you've got to have that insight into what's happening And I guess I was lucky that my very first major acquisition in Larfleet was a a site in Oakham where it didn't have any planning and it didn't have a bypass. And just about every national developer looked at it, but it it was intrinsically risky, very risky, because it wasn't allocated. And frankly, who would know it, it would ever get permission? And, you know, it's a politically quite difficult place in Rutland. And so, therefore, you know, you're up against that as well. I took a gamble to buy it and, obviously, I I, got, I managed to work through it. I was fortunate that the bypass that was talked about <laughs> did actually happen. That was luck, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I couldn't really do much about it. It, it, it was either going to get funding or it wasn't. And at the time I did the deal, it hadn't got funding because if it had got, everyone else would have been interested so I had to gamble that that was a 50-50 kind of split, but it's quite an expensive toss of a coin, but that was kind of the basis in which I did it. Mm-hmm. And then I managed to get that through. It took me 10 years, though, to manage to, to try and go from a position. So I think the other thing that where house builders, people don't realise, is that from, from the start of that process, in probably 2002-3, stroke three, it was eight to 10 years, even when you start getting the local authority interest, it, that's the amount of time that it takes to get a scheme through. Right. And I was millions and millions of pounds into that project. Mm. Once you're in it, you're in it. You can't turn back. <laughs> and obviously the local authority and the local people were obviously you know, blocking things and doing this and doing that. Everything comes out of the woodwork when things aren't going great. And so you've gotta kind of stick in there and you have to stick in there and somehow survive, actually, and bring the people with you to get it through. But it's it's a it was an eight to ten year process. And most of the schemes that I look at are always five. So you do need to have one. If you're going to go for something, you need, yeah. to have, you need to have one. Well, you have to have the resources, but you won't as a medium-sized company. So mm-hmm. therefore, you have to have the grit of somehow thinking, well, I don't know how I'm going to do this, but I will do it. Right. And I'll stick in here, and I've got to somehow get to the end, and somehow I've got to just keep calm in the meantime when all this money's going out, yeah? Yeah. yeah. So I think – but the one thing that I always <laughs> say to people is I've probably, since I've owned a business – had one or two sleepless nights in my whole life right. right so i always put my strength down to the fact that i can switch off and go to sleep every night and i desperately need seven or eight hours every night and if i can have seven or eight hours i can get up in the morning i could can fight kind of anyone and as long as i keep my my sport going that keeps yeah. my brain active then as long as i can do that so I think the sport and my running and my, my golfing and, a, and, and other things I do in that arena, mm. watching go and watch Arsenal for the week, as long as I can do those things, that keeps me sane to be able to carry on doing all the things I'm doing in the rest of the week. Right. So I think that's that's my key thing to anyone is if you can sleep at night and you can cope with the kind of pressure that, that you have to cope with, then you're the right person to do your own thing. Mm. If you are a worrier and you can't sleep, then you're going to get ill. And you're, you're just not going to be able to do it. So you kind of, and I think there's some people who can do it, some people can't. But everyone I know is good at it. the people that can switch off at night and go to sleep and not have a pen and a paper by their bedside because I've never done that. So I can't, my brain doesn't wake up in the middle of the night writing things down because I've never ever allowed a bit of pen and paper beside my bed to do that. So right. my brain doesn't wake up. You're naturally able to switch off or yeah. have you got a, a different
1: view on the world like, you know, there was, a, there was an MD I, I spoke with recently and and he was probably one of the calmest MDs I've, I've ever spoken to in a business. And he was like, well, it's not going to kill me. Yeah, you know, the guy can't come around and, and shoot me. And, and his, his take on it was, you know, it's not that
2: important. important. It's, oh, you know, nice. it's not life and death, I guess, is I what he's going I've happen. taught myself to switch off. So it's taken a while. I haven't had any training, but I've just, I I learned from being, coming from being quite a worrier to becoming not a worrier by training my body to go to sleep. Mm. And when I go to sleep, I start thinking about things that I enjoy doing. Right, okay. So I might might go to sleep and think about (laughs) a par five that I've got an eagle on, and I just remember the shots that I played there. If I'm still awake when I finish that story to myself, I then right. think about maybe, you know, the Arsenal double winning team in 1970 when I was at Wembley <laughs> watching the final or the Liverpool game when Arsenal scored in the last minute. And so I'll kind of recreate that in my mind. Right, okay. And by the time I get through about five things mm. that I really that are precious to me, you know, or things about my sons that I remember. I'm asleep. His wedding day, maybe, if wedding his wife's day. listening. <laughs> wedding day. Yeah, wedding day and yeah, and, and All right. birth of the children. Sorry, so was that was that self-taught or A self-taught. So yeah, i just self-taught. So I just now, and I do it every night when I go to sleep, I just start thinking of things that I like thinking about. Mm. And almost by the time I've got through the second or third story, I'm I'm asleep. Right. Mm. Amazing. Okay. All right. So that's what I do. And I've just taught myself to do that every night, yeah. Well, I'll try that. I'll try it. All right. OK. Um, let, let's just talk about Look, We we got
1: Brexit looming. Who knows what's going to happen? As of today, Bojo's got a deal to happen. But whether it will be signed off from Parliament is a is a, <laughs> a completely different question. But, you know, everybody's thinking, you know, going back to 2008, 2012, and, you know, everybody's, you know, uh, worried to... to Stronger word. I've got some clients who are super positive. I've got, you know, most people should probably be in the middle somewhere and be cautious. But 2008, 2012 happened. What did you do well, yeah? And how do you wish –
2: is there anything you wish you'd done differently? I think the two recessions of 1990 – And 2008, Mm. I think the 1990 was more challenging than the 2008. Oh, right. I think it was a worse recession. Now, I sometimes look back, having survived both of them, and it would be fair to say the first one, I was very young. I didn't know what I was doing, so I just winged it Mm. on everything. And my natural instinct just made a decision. And I had no idea whether it was a good or a bad one, I'll be honest, because I didn't have the experience. Therefore, that had some challenges because I got a lot of things wrong. Right. I got a lot of things right that I probably wouldn't have tried now because I know know more. The 2008 one, I was obviously more experienced. So I kind of went through more of a, a kind of sensible approach to things. But I wasn't as risky, albeit I'm still quite a risky guy who takes chances, but I wasn't as risky because I understood the consequences of those back in the 91. I didn't know what I was doing, so therefore you just did it and take the consequences out later. So actually I think that because I survived both of them in different, absolutely different ways, Mm. I don't think I could – really say that I'd have changed anything because I think if you're a small and medium-sized company who survived a recession, Mm. as big as those two, you must have done pretty much a lot of things right. I wouldn't really change anything because I came through it, Mm. and therefore I must have made a lot more good decisions than bad. And overall, I think that I've got to remember those rather than the ones I've got wrong. And what would you say a couple of those really good decisions would be? Other, other than the affordable movement? I think moving forward. into the public sector, I think yeah. probably just being able to do all sorts of innovative land deals um, on deferred terms, joint ventures, right. all sorts of things that I did that actually helped me. Also, I introduced things that are commonplace now. But they weren't at the time, you know, I, I introduced my, was what at that time was things like house-to-sell schemes where we were selling people's houses for them, and that wasn't prevalent then. I was kind of the first one to really pushed that assistant move in that, and I became a bit of an expert on that. We used to I, – I, I was – because of my financial services background, we specialised in being absolutely top of the tree on things like mortgages for people, helping people to kind of hit the multiple so they could buy the home. So I did, mm. I, I, we did a lot of that, probably more than anyone else. So I kind of picked some areas that I needed to be good at and became an expert at it and mm-hmm. drove that. And so I think it drives innovation for those people who have to be innovative to survive. Right, okay. Cool. Yeah. And then just finally is the, the, the final
0: question. If you could go back in time as you're coming into house building
1: rather than sport or anything... What's the one piece of advice that you would give yourself as somebody, either coming into the industry or
2: when you decided to open up they choose either? Oh, look, I can answer that in two ways. One, if you come into the industry, it's a fabulous in- industry. Um, I've just, I, I had the privilege of meeting our 12 apprentices that we just took on about two weeks ago. And the thing I said to them all you're coming into a hard industry and it's going to be tough. You guys are on site and you're either going to be able to cope with the guys taking the mickey out of you. You're going to be have to take the weather. You're going to have to take all the little tricks on that that they'll play on you. But if you can get through the first six months and then you get through the next six months and you start being useful to the guys that you're working with, you've cracked it. You've still got to get the next year and the next year until you know what you're doing and you mm-hmm. could, but then you are really in a position where none of you will worry about having to work again because there is always a need for brick glass, plumbers, electricians, whatever the situation is. So stick at it. Just don't get too worked up. Just, you know, these guys are there to test you. They will test you. It's a hard place you DDP streetwise mm. and clearly just, just go with the flow. You know, the cold mornings are going to be challenging, but these guys will be there at 7 o'clock, so you need to be. So if you've been out in the town the night before, you need to get out and go because you won't have any sympathy from anyone on the building site because they'll all be there whether they were out all night. So that's the culture that you need to do. And if you're ever not there, they will take the mickey out of you mercifully all day long. And there will be no. It will be completely and utterly hard and tough. So all I'm saying is avoid all that by just being there and don't get caught out by giving yourself a mountain to climb every day by being late or being by being you know having a few drinks and not getting up. So that would be. my – I said that to them all. If you then want to become your own boss, you need to have the kind of person that can be able to cope with the pressures of that. If you are happy to. to have a nine, nine, a, a nine to five, seven to ten, whatever job, and get paid because you don't like the pressure, then that's what you want to do because you clearly know that probably the money's going to be there at the end of the, of the week, every month, and you might have a family, and that may be suitable. If you're someone like me who was always destined to want to do their own thing, you do need to have the one thing I said earlier, you need to be able to sleep at night. That's my number one priority. If you sleep at night, everything in the morning seems a lot easier and you can cope with almost anything thrown at you. But if you can't sleep and you can't do some sport to get some of the aggression and some of the other stuff out of your way and keep yourself healthy, probably number two would be look after yourself, go to the doctors, have your yearly medicals, make sure that you follow good exercise guidelines. And I think to be honest, a combination of the sleep and the and the health can drive you into doing almost anything that you want to do. And they would
0: be my two main things. You're not the first person who's mentioned about uh, the health side and
1: looking after yourself. It's been mentioned a couple of times. But Carl, thank you very
0: much. That was excellent. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers. Discover how to build your UK housebuilder business and attract the top 15% of leadership talent using one-to-many platforms, automation and 24-7, 365 proven digital strategies before your competition. Be sure to subscribe for more podcasts from the Good to Great series, featuring leading voices from the UK housebuilding industry from small to medium businesses to leading PLCs. Don't forget to rate and review so that we can continue to bring you the best content possible. For more information, call 0203 800 1080 or check out www.hc-group.co.uk and book a client or candidate blueprint strategy session.